When I, when I was a kid, uh, my parents had this uh, little summer house upstate. It was in uh, Orange County. It was great. It was this very, very simple little cottage, really, right, uh, right near a lake. Um, so we loved it. We loved going up. We'd go up most weekends, I think, in the summer, fishing and swimming. And Anyway, when I got old enough, uh, I guess I was in college now, uh, I'd go up. My parents let me go up with uh, friends of mine. We'd go for the couple of days and nights. I remember uh, being up there with, with two buddies, um, Chris Maloney and Danny O'Sullivan, uh, guys I grew up with, and we were... Uh, we had a rowboat, and we, uh, what we'd do is the rowboat, when we'd, we, when we'd leave to come home, you'd take the boat out and just kind of put it on the, on the side of the lake, turn it upside down. So it was easy. You just, now we did the opposite, throw, throw the boat, boat in, the, in the lake, and we went out. It was the three of us, and um, there was a big float, kind of like a raft out in the middle of the lake. So we're rowing out there, and um, all of a sudden, a, uh, a snake comes out from under the seat of one, of one of the seats in the boat, this rowboat. And I lost my marbles, I really did. Um, I completely came undone. Um, it was a water snake, it wasn't a, a rattlesnake. I mean, I, I knew it wasn't poisonous, but it was a snake. And um, I got up, went to the front of the boat. I mean, it's like a, like a t I don't know, a 10-foot rowboat. It wasn't big. I went to the, to the front of the boat just to get as far away from this thing as I could. And my buddy, uh, Danny, picks it up. And uh, I'm trying to be cool. I'm trying, I'm hoping they're not going to realize I'm as scared as, scared as I am. Although I ran, ran away to the end of the boat. So they, and they obviously knew. They were hysterical, laughing at my reaction to this snake. Uh, anyway, Danny takes it and then just tosses it into the lake. They were stunned at my reaction to this. I kind of was too. I mean, I knew I was afraid of snakes, but I guess was being trapped in the boat with it. Um, they never saw this side of me. So I remember Danny saying like, what the, like, what was the big deal? Like, why'd you go so crazy? We weren't gonna do anything. Um, you know, we knew you were scared. And I said to them, well, if it was the other way around, I would have stuck the snake down your shirt. <laughs> and they kind of look at me like, you idiot. Um, two minutes later, two more snakes come out from under this. It must have been like a snake uh, farm under this, under this seat in the boat. Well, this was like all three of us at the same time see these two snakes come out. So we're all looking at them. And then Danny and Chris look at each other. <laughs> And then they look at me, and it's like, you're a dead man. And so it was like, remember, remember the movie Snakes on a Plane? I mean, this was like snakes in a rowboat. It was, it was this bad. So I get up, back to my spot up front. This time I picked up an oar. And I'm not exaggerating any of this. I picked up the oar, and I said to them, I will whack your head. I will take your head off if you come near me with the snake. They were crying, they were laughing so loud. They were like bent over in, like when you're laughing so hard. They've each got a snake. They were willing to take the paddle in the head in order to, in order to terrorize me. So I realized that, I was realized like my threat was useless. So I just jumped in the lake. I jumped in the lake and swam. And I was pretty far out, but I was like Michael Phelps. I mean, I just swam. Um, 
Like, I never thought I would have reacted that way. Um, and that's probably like 37 years ago. Time hasn't helped. Um, last week I was down in uh, Florida. I was in Key West for, my brother's got a house down there. So I was there for like three nights last weekend. And uh, he's got a little, cool little house, a little tiny pool in the backyard. So I went out for a run, I think on Saturday. And my brother and sister-in-law, they, they went to the store. So I remember I was kind of running back thinking, all right, I'll, they had an outdoor shower next to the pool. So I was like, I'm gonna take a quick shower and I'll jump in the pool. So I get to the house, I go into the house and I start to open the, the sliding door to go, to go out. And I see this iguana sitting on, on like cr walking along the back fence. And I was like, oh, and then there was another one walking up a tree. So the door was shut, and I was like, needless to say, there was just there was no no outdoor shower and no no swimming. Um, it's crazy. It's like an iguana is a harmless. I mean, they're more afraid of us than we are of them. I know that, and I knew that was a a water snake. I knew it was a, a harmless snake. But it's crazy what fear can do to you, isn't it? Like my fear made no sense. But that didn't stop me from acting on it, like running and sitting in the house instead of sitting by the pool because of the iguana. Fear is crazy, isn't it? I mean, I think sometimes fear, sometimes fear is, is a good thing. It's like a gift. It's a wake-up call. It's like, hey, you're scared because something dangerous is in front of you. It keeps you from the hospital. Sometimes fear does, or it keeps you from the, the police station. Because I'm like, whoa, like, this is crazy. I got, this is not, not smart to be here or to be around this. I gotta get out of here. But most of the time, fear isn't good, I think. Because most of the time, it controls us. It kind of paralyzes us sometimes. I know it does me with the, the whole reptile thing. This gospel we just heard, I mean, it's a great one. And it's really, first and foremost, it's about a, a miracle. I mean, this guy, this blind guy is healed. But there's like secondary, there's tons of like themes in it. And I think one of them, a big one, is fear. There's a ton of scared people in this gospel. Pharisees are the worst. I mean, you know, they never get good play in the gospels because they're generally kind of the bad guys, right? They're the ones always going up, going after Jesus, and ultimately, Good Friday. They were so insecure, they were so scared, the Pharisees were, because they're watching Jesus. They know the miracle happened, but they don't want to acknowledge it, because they had a lot of power, they had a lot of influence, they had a lot of authority, people were afraid of them because of their position, and they loved it. This guy shows up and he just heals this blind guy. And crowds are gathering and he's got great, amazing words. He is stealing their thunder. And they hate that. They will no longer have the influence that they once had. And the prospect of that scares them. They're afraid. So it's like, we'll do whatever we have to do to destroy him to make sure that he doesn't win this little battle. 
So they're making these ridiculous arguments. Well, he, it was the Sabbath, and you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, and Jesus did the whole mud and the spit thing, and he put it on his eye, so Jesus worked on a Sabbath, so that must mean Jesus is illegitimate. That's ridiculous. They knew it was ridiculous, but they just were afraid. You know what, when we're afraid and we act on our fear, we usually become ridiculous. I'm threatening my best friends with a oar and a head. I'm being ridiculous because I'm allowing fear to like make me a crazy person. And then there's another part of this gospel. We, we read the short version. There's a more expanded version and there's another little story with the blind guy's parents. The Pharisees call them in. Uh, yeah, the parents in. They're like, what happened here? What, is that your son? Wasn't he blind and now he can see? They're, they're asking, and they're like, well, yeah, you know, that is our son, and he was blind, and, and now he can see. Well, who did it? Who did it? And they're scared. They don't want to say who did it because they know what the Pharisees are about. They, they know what the answer the Pharisees are looking for, so if they give the wrong answer, they may get tossed out. That's what it says. It goes, his parents, oh, so they basically go, I, you know, we don't really know. Yeah, that's our son, and he was blind, and he's not, but we don't really know, kind of. They're, they're afraid to say it's Jesus. It says his parents said this because they were afraid. If they acknowledged him as the Christ, they'd be expelled from the synagogue. So they just passed the buck because fear was going to win out. It's not good when fear wins out. I just was reading about this, uh, read this article yesterday about this book. Um, I think the book was written five to six years ago, but I ordered it yesterday on Amazon. It's, it's an interesting story. It was this uh, woman from Belgium who, uh, her name is, well, I'm gonna butcher the name, it's Beek Vanderhove. I'm sure that's not the proper pronunciation, but it's a real long name. The name of the book is The Taste of Silence. The Taste of Silence. And it's about, uh, it's like a memoir of her very unusual life. At 19, she was diagnosed with uh, ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. And she was given two to five years to live. And pretty quickly, she started seeing the effects of it. She'd become semi-paralyzed. And then it went into remission, the disease for 27 years, which is like never happens, 27 years. She didn't get better, but it, it, she didn't get any worse than she was. And in those 27 years, she had this amazing life. She became a writer and a counselor and a teacher. So this book, The Taste of Silence, is about dealing with life when life is brutal and painful. And she talked, she discovered faith in the process. She came from a Christian family growing up, but kind of, you know, distant, wasn't really a, a factor. So somehow she became connected after this diagnosis and being very depressed and overwhelmed. There was a, a, a group of nuns, a convent of religious sisters, Benedictine nuns, and she went to visit them and was so struck by their faith she moved in with them for a year. Just she wanted to, she felt so much peace from them and their faith. So she writes about that and then she got into Buddhism and she talked about the power of that and how the Christianity and Buddhism, like Buddhism, like they were kind of complementing each other. She does this whole thing about being religious and being spiritual. And her thing is you need both. Today everybody wants to be spiritual. Nobody, well, 
not you guys, but almost nobody, almost nobody wants to go to church. Like, I don't need a church, I don't need rules, I don't need sacraments, I don't need structure. I believe in God on the boardwalk or in the, on the sunset. And yeah, God is in those places. But I don't need, you know, I'm not doubting that, the creation. But they're like, I don't need, I don't need to be the, the discipline of a community, structure. Spiritual is good enough. Well, no, it's not, says this woman. And I agree with her, like, you need both. And if you're just religious and not spiritual, well, that's not good enough either. Like, we've gotta be both. Faith is, there's gotta be a, a personal, relational dimension, which would be more sort of spirit. But there's also gotta be the power in the, of, of community and sacrament and truth and law. So she says you need both. It just looks like a great book. And each, they say each chapter, short chapters just talk about these struggles that she has and how faith was so often like the remedy. Man, who doesn't need that? I was reading, I didn't read the book yet, but part of what she wrote in the book, she talks about her three demons. The three demons that she struggles with, and she's not alone. These are the three demons, sadness, anger, and fear. We all become handcuffed by sadness, anger and fear at different times in life. I mean, don't we? And she says the first two, sadness and anger, as bad as they can be and as unhealthy and painful as they can be, you can kind of deal with them. She says it's sort of like a release valve. When you're, when you're really sad, you can cry. You have like a crazy cry and you, you kind of do feel better. It doesn't take the problem, the sadness away, but you, you kind of regroup. And the same thing with anger, she says. There's a similar, like, release. You can scream. You can go for a run. You can break something. You know, and she says, hey, you know, you can get yourself in trouble if you, if you act out in, in, in stupid ways, but, like, there's healthy ways of dealing with anger. And it kind of helps. But then she said, but fear is kind of different. Like, I can cry my eyes out and I'm still gonna be scared. I can go curse somebody out and I'm still gonna be sad. Like, those things don't help with sadness. But she says this does. Naming it. Like, acknowledging your fear. Naming what you're afraid of. And then slowly approaching it. Slowly, because you're afraid of it. But the more you move toward it and the more you name it, like the less scary it often becomes. I mean, think about it. Think about you going through something. You're like really worried, you're scared, you're stressed for something really legit and you're holding it in. We've all done this. And then somebody you know, somebody who loves you, who knows you says, hey, what's up? They know you're not yourself. And then you tell them. I mean, don't you kind of always feel better? Or maybe you don't even need somebody. Like, you, you, know, you're, you, you know, you're together enough to say, you know what, I gotta go talk to someone about what's got me scared. And when I do, it's like, yeah, the problem isn't gone, but maybe, I'm, maybe I've gotten now, I'm like, hey, I realize I'm not alone. The person says, hey, I know exactly what you're talking about. I felt the same way, and this is how I dealt with it. So I'm not doing this thing alone. So it's not as scary, because I named it. You know what I think often we do with fear is 
We don't name it, we just avoid it. If there's something scary on this side of the block, on this side of the street, I cross the street. And from a distance, I kind of like walk around it. But it continues to be there. We avoid it. I mean, hey, look at me and my little, <laughs> my fears. Like, what, imagine if the bishop called and said, hey, Brian, um, I need you to go to Key West and, and be in the parish in Key West. You know, if I said to him, well, you know, I'm sorry, bishop, but you know, the iguanas, I, I can't really go. I'm afraid of the iguanas. I mean, look how I'd be, it's ludicrous, right? Well, snakes and iguanas, you know, are not that big a deal. I can kind of survive in a way with my fear. I mean, we don't have a, an iguana problem in, in Long Beach. I'm not looking around the corners for fear of snakes and iguanas. So it doesn't really impact my life. But how about big fears, important, dangerous fears, paralyzing fears like commitment. I'm afraid to pull the trigger. I'm just too cautious. And as a result, I never quite live the life I should be living. I'm afraid of commitment or I'm afraid of forgiving somebody. I'm afraid of being merciful because I may get burned again by that person or I may feel weak. I'm afraid to let go. I don't want, I want to cling to the people in my life. I don't, I don't, I'm afraid to give them the freedom, the healthy, appropriate freedom they should have. So I just sort of circle the wagons all the time because I'm, I'm afraid of the, the alternative. The high diving board at the town pool that I look up at and scares the life out of me. But kids my age are going off the, off the diving board. Well, if I climb the steps and I go up, I'm scared to death, but I real before I hit the water, I realized this wasn't so bad. I faced the fear. That job interview that I should have gone for, I was afraid, and I just, I didn't go for it. And I was qualified for it, or the position on the team, or the part in the play. We avoid those things that scare us, and we're less because of it. So, Name it, face it, conquer it. 